Hello and welcome to Carbon Removal Newsroom. I'm Ross Kenyon. I am the lead strategist at the Nori Carbon Removal Marketplace. Today I have with me two panelists, uh, Alden Donnelly, one of my colleagues at Nori, the director of carbon economics there. Hey, Alden. Hi. Happy to have you back. And also Tito Jankowski, co-founder of Negative, which is a startup making products out of atmospheric carbon dioxide and host of the air miners community. Hey, Tito. Hey, Ross. Yeah, thanks for being here. Also, if you're listening, sorry we missed last week. We just could not swing it given all the things that were happening um, uh, on our ends. But hopefully we don't have to do that too often. But we have a cool show today. I'm going to run us through the outline and then we're going to dive in. So the first thing that I have on here is that Unilever has announced a new climate plan where they're going to put carbon labels on 70,000 products. I think that has some interesting implications for carbon removal. And then WRI had a webinar on soil carbon. That's the World Resources Institute. So we'll talk a bit about the implications there. We wanted to talk about uh, Rhodium Group and uh, Carbon 180s. Uh, they had a presentation that happened yesterday based on a report that Rhodium did about the jobs that would be created due to uh, carbon removal legislation and policy. Um, but uh, we'll have to talk about that next week. So that happened this week, but we will be dealing with it next week. And then also there was a full committee held on um, the uh, Growing Climate Solutions Act in Congress. So that is underway right now too, but you're also going to have to wait until next week to get a more substantial um, take on that. And then also we want to talk about, um, I don't even know how you say it, Tito. What, what's the proper term? What do they like? Lab-grown meat? What do they like? Uh, lab-grown meat works good. Works lab-grown for me. meat works good. And that's, there's some updates on that and may relate to the future of regenerative agriculture, uh, CAFOs, meat, etc. So we're going to dive into all of that. But let's start at the top. Tito, tell us about Unilever. Unilever. So if that name, first off, isn't that familiar, or if it's, if it's familiar, but you're not sure what they do, Unilever is one of these uh, giant, uh, giant brands, uh, kind of a, a house of brands approach where they, they own lots of things that you've, you've heard about, like Dove Soap, Briar, uh, Briar's Ice Cream, Dollar Shave Club. Um, all of these are part of the Unilever uh, empire. Uh, and this week they announced that uh, for all their products, they're going to be all 70,000 of their products. Uh, they're going to be adding uh, labeling to show uh, how much uh, carbon dioxide greenhouse gas was, uh, was used during uh, uh, production and shipping. Uh, and what's cool about this is it's, um, you know, it's, it's such a, a wide span of, of different products. This is something that uh, you're going to be seeing pop up in your life in, uh, in many, many different ways. Um, from the things you eat to the things you buy at the store to things that hang out in your shower. Um, I think the, the timing is, the timing is interesting, right? During the, during the, as part of the COVID outbreak, uh, the CEO addressed that and says, just, you know, it's, it's something that we, we can't take our, can't take our off the ball right now. Um, even though there's a lot of other things, uh, other things happening. Um, you know, we, we've seen kind of similar type announcements or, or practices from, from other companies, um, you see, for example, Microsoft announcing its uh, billion-dollar carbon removal uh, and carbon neutral investment recently. 
Uh, you see Lyft making its uh, making its rides carbon neutral every time you you take a Lyft. Um, what I love about this is it it makes sense for for Unilever. They're uh, you know they're, they're making a move in the climate space that's a fit for them across uh, across all their brands. Every every single one of their products has a package, um, and they're they're using that across these seventy thousand products to. Uh, to tell people more about uh, about uh, the changing climate and uh, and greenhouse gases, um, so I really like how that's uh, you know they're using their uh, they're using their strength there to say look we're gonna we're gonna put this on shelves uh, all around the world, um, so that's really exciting. I think we'll see more uh, more announcements like this where it's a, a company doing its thing and figuring out how climate and carbon uh, can can amplify the the work that they are doing. What do you think, Alden? I think it's really interesting, and I really uh, applaud uh, Unilever for for taking this first step. Um, uh, I, I I also think it's a, a little more complicated than it sounds. So, for example, if you look at the process of of making a bar of soap, or making all of the bars of soap that are sold under the same name and the same brand around the world, the um, the actual greenhouse gas footprint for each individual bar of soap can be very, 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 very different. And so it's still going to be a process of figuring out how to, how to allocate um, emissions to each individual bar of soap. I think it's a really, really good idea to um, go this step in the branding so that the consumer is starting to get a better idea of the greenhouse gases generally embedded in the products and services we use on the one hand. There are two sort of cautionary notes that I, I would um, offer, however, which is uh, it's, it, it's, it's going to be close to impossible to actually have an accurate greenhouse gas footprint attached to every, every bar of soap. And we should be comfortable with the idea that we're looking at in many cases um, global product supply chain averages um, and, and, and uh, not have expectations for, for uh, specific product accuracy that can't be met. And I, 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 I think Unilever's got the right goals, but sometimes the language is suggesting a higher level of precision or accuracy than is going to, is going to be realized. And that should not matter. It will only matter if consumers perceive that they're being um, given better information than they need. So don't want to have backlash happening uh, because of misperceptions that we might create unnecessarily from the get-go. Does that, does that make sense the way I, uh, I say it? Makes sense to, to me. Now, one thing that stood out to me in, in this article, which by the way, all the articles we're discussing are in the show notes, if you'd like to read them for yourself, is that they did not seem to be very supportive of offsetting as a plan. Um, they seem to be much more mm -hmm. focused on uh, what's called insetting, if you've never heard this term, which is actually decarbonizing from the inside out rather than uh, buying something external to these processes to negate or offset those emissions. What do you think? I mean, do you think that they'll end up supporting more regenerative agriculture as a company or finding other ways to inset uh, without relying on external marketplaces? Well, that I, I said earlier, I had two concerns, and that relates to my second concern. And again, I'm I I, I strongly um, 
um, uh, uh, applaud Unilever for their intentions and their goals here. Um, when a company says, I am not uh, supportive of offsetting, but um, the goal is insetting, that typically means the company is saying, I, as a company, want to manage all of the opportunities to reduce emissions in my supply chain and keep credit for any reductions that are realized because of my programming, um, keep the credit not, not, uh, and keep it within my supply chain, keep it under my brand. In other words, I, um, as Unilever, do not want to find myself in a situation where maybe my suppliers can choose between selling real interest in those offset credits to me, Unilever, and maybe selling those offset credits to British Petroleum, or I guess we call it BP now. We never, how old am I? Um, anyway, um, so uh, um, my- You're not old enough to call it the Anglo-Iranian, <laughs> whatever it was called before BP. I'm almost that old. Oh, you're almost that old, okay. Sorry, so, continue. So I, I really applaud uh, corporate um, goals to, to um, manage their supply chain greenhouse gas emissions and not having them double credited or double claimed. But certainly my preference would be in a, to live in a world where food and fiber producers in those supply chains are free to sell real interest in their um, uh, emission reductions and carbon removal to the highest bidder. And I also kind of like the idea of it being an open marketplace so that food and fiber producers might be able to use this ability they have to deliver a valued ecosystem service to get revenues from new sources outside the food supply chain that makes the food supply chain more secure. So I, I don't buy into the offsetting is bad and insetting is the only way um, a, a approach to doing things because that is not necessarily in the best interest of those who are in the business every day of growing the food and fiber that are the, the, the starting place of these supply chains. And I'd also go one step further. I, I, I really hope we don't fall into um, this being an either or uh, mm -hmm. Uh, uh, discussion because the hope and I and I and I applaud it as well is that this branding will lead to a consumer willingness to pay a higher price for the products that legitimately have a lower greenhouse gas footprint showing on their label. The difficulty I have is going back in 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 over the history of my experience. My experience suggests that when five or 10% of the, of the um, bars of soap that are on the retail shelf um, are certified and have that uh, lower uh, environmental footprint or higher social value, whether it's free trade or other factors that are being reported, when that market penetration of the superior product is small, it's only five or 10% of the bars on the shelf, there seems to be quite a, a, a nice consumer willingness to pay a premium for those products. So I want Unilever to be able to exploit that willingness. In my experience though, there's some market penetration wall and I, I, and I see it every time, but I still don't have the capacity to forecast where that wall is. But there's some place where that um, percent of, 
of, of bars of soap that are on the shelf hits uh, a maximum, at which point in time the consumer's willingness to pay a premium for the superior product goes away. So I don't know if it's at 20% or 35% or 65%, but there's uh, the, but but when the num the percentage of bars of soap on the shelf um, reach that penetration wall, then all of a sudden the willingness to pay the premium is gone, um, and um, that differentiation goes away. I, I I think it's reasonable, and and I hope that um, retailers and consumer products producers. Uh, exploit all of the opportunity to attract a premium. But the reason I think they should support offsetting and the coincident development of vibrant and robust carbon markets is because the carbon markets will last after they hit the market penetration wall and that consumer willingness to pay a premium goes away. Got it. Well, anything to add there, Tito? No, it's a great story. I look forward to more more stories like this as uh, as these companies kind of build out and develop their their language and their around their commitments. Sign up to the Economist for in depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. And what if I swap this, since we're already talking about consumer products, why don't you fill us in on uh, lab-grown meat and what's happening over there? Yeah, so um, you may be a person that has uh, these kind of products in your uh, in your fridge or in your freezer, I have uh, right now. I've got a bunch of Beyond Meat plant-based uh, plant-based uh, plant protein. Uh, and today, I saw this great, uh, well, very interesting announcement from Impossible Foods. They're the developers of the Impossible Burger. Um, and the CEO was saying that, uh, kind of projecting forward and saying that he sees the uh, the the end of the of the meat industry or the collapse of the of the meat industry uh, coming soon. Um, and so I, I thought that was a, an interesting story that came up in the sense of it's something that um, my background's in, in biomedical engineering and, and biological engineering. And so these, these types of products have definitely come on my radar uh, before. But now that I'm, that I'm taking an interest in climate and climate solutions, to start to, to look at a, an announcement like that and say, wow, I wonder what kind of uh, effect that will have on, uh, on carbon if, if we're moving um, if I'm moving from from ground beef to uh, Impossible Burgers, uh, what is the uh, what is the net effect if the if the meat industry collapses and is replaced with uh, with these plant based meats or, or lab grown meats? What do you think about that, Alden? And also, do either of you know about? I imagine eating CAFO farmed beef or just meat in general is not very good for you relative to regenerative meat. And I don't know how healthy it is for you to eat something that's more processed, uh, that is plant-based um, meat replacement protein. I don't know about the relative health, health of it, but I doubt it could be worse than eating CAFO meat. Uh, so that, and then also, do you think this will be farmed regeneratively, Alden? Do you think there's a possibility to have this kind of upside as well? I don't know. I, 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 know? I, I, okay. I, I wish I did. <laughs> there are two topics that I, I just 
struggle with over and over and over and over and over again. And one is meat and particularly CAFO meat and one is nuclear. And I have to say that I don't have the right answer and have been trying to find the right answer for a long time. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm an animal lover. Um, I, 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 there's a lot about CAFO versus, um, versus uh, managed grazing, you know, in open grasslands that, that, that really bothers me. Um, but whenever I've tried to really take a long view of the um, total life cycle, environmental, not just greenhouse gas effects, every time I try, figure out the numbers, I get different numbers. So I'm still in the process of trying to form an, a, 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 an opinion based on facts. I'm, I'm not there yet. I'd like to be, my life would be easier, but I'm not there yet. <laughs> well, what do you think, Tito, um, either about the, the health implications of this for, for humanity at large, and also you think they'll probably go, I mean, I imagine in 15 years, regenerative agriculture has come a long way from now too. What was your, what was the specific question? I was looking up the term uh, CAFO meat. It wasn't something I was familiar with. <laughs> oh, s sorry. <laughs> uh, you're basically just, yeah, factory farmed meat in case you're listening out there. Oh, just, um, I'm wondering about, because people, one of the criticisms of uh, plant-based protein has been um, the degree of processing and whether it's reliant upon various monocultures um, for, for soy or for corn or, or whatever is going into these products is not necessarily always the, the best thing to be eating. Um, but is that any worse than CAFO beef? Like I, I really doubt it is, but sure. if you compare that to regenerative meat, regenerative meat, I think, and people often claim is uh, a rather healthy kind of meat to be eating, but I don't know. You, you probably have more of a biology background than me and I'm just, I'm just guessing. So don't take what I'm saying as as yeah, certainly. Um, I guess I would probably apply similar logic that I uh, that I would to, to electrification of, of, of vehicles. So I think a, a argument I've heard about uh, electric cars is, well, you know what, the, the supply chain and manufacturing of them is um, a, a giant carbon emission, uh, has a lot of implications there. Uh, does that does that undo the value of, of electric cars? Um, to me, the, the electrification of, of cars is, is just it's going to happen and we're going to get better at, um, at the, the, the manufacturing, at, at the supply chains in order to, uh, to make them better from a, from a carbon footprint stand, standpoint. So it's more of a, it's more a question of the trajectory. Um, and I think I would apply this, the same logic here. Uh, we were in the very early stages of these plant protein and lab grown meat companies. Um, if the, in, in the sense of the technology is pretty early, um, Beyond Meat, I think, just IPO'd in the last two years. Um, Impossible Foods has not IPO'd. It's a very early stuff. And I think that um, if, the, you know, if the foods are, are highly processed and you, and you want to get something that, that tastes good without all the, with all the processing, I think that's something that will be, uh, will be developed. Um, but it, in terms of the, you know, the, from the, the base level of it, it's, it's plant protein. It's you're, you're growing plants. Um, and that's very different than, um, than anything that's, that's uh, well, involves land use and meat. I think for lab-grown meat, that's got its own. That's got its own thing. Um, but again, I, I guess that's that's how I come from it. As I say, you know, 
yes, and this technology and, and these, these companies are rapidly, rapidly making progress. Um, and so I, I just think about more where that transformation can go, uh, which is it can go to um, replacing uh, animal-based protein with, with plant-based protein or, um, or lab-grown protein. I also think that when we start to, to have a better idea of what, first of all, the numbers are for the plant-based options and um, uh, the full consideration of, of livestock, I think we're going to find that it, it's not, um, um, we're going to have to start differentiating between beef, pork, poultry. The, 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 mm -hmm. the answers are very, very, very different. Even if you're talking CAFO or confinement operations, for each of the species we rely on for a flesh-based product, the numbers are so, so, so different. This is a conversation hard for me to have because my dog is, is begging for my attention right now. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I think beyond, beyond that, the carbon benefit to, I think, just the, if you could produce something that would be indistinguishable and nutritionally indistinguishable from CAFO meat, and you could subtract the enormous cruelty of, uh, of the factory farming system. It seems hard to see why anyone would not uh, go for that. So I hope I hope that's the case. I would love to see that switch. I am very curious to see because if it does, lab-grown meat is of course different from something that might require feedstocks from uh, externally grown uh, agricultural products. So will we see? Will that increase the demand for various monocultures? Is it possible to produce those in a regenerative fashion that uh, is not the worst of conventional agriculture? I guess we'll have to see, but I don't know, Alden, maybe, maybe we can sum this up by saying, if this is a prediction that's being made for the next 15 years before this happens, do you think regenerative agriculture will be truly the dominant agricultural paradigm in the United States? Um you know, uh, 20 years ago, nobody ever or few heard the words regenerative agriculture. We talked about conservation uh, practices and then we moved on to sustainable and we're now in regenerative. And I think 20 years from now, we're going to be saying um, not what is the greenhouse gas footprint of uh, a pound of meat, whether it's plant based or or. Um, or animal-based, and we're going to be saying what what are all of the what's the integrated environmental footprint per I don't know what the right metric is per unit of nutrient value for everything mm -hmm. we put in our mouth. So the 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 the, the denominator is going to be there are going to be two denominators: nutrient value and taste. And the numerator is going to be a metric that uh, represents the um, the uh, broader environmental footprint, and I we're pretty we're, we're not there yet, but I think we're going to be talking in, in completely different terms in less than twenty years. Mm -hmm. Well, I hope you're right. That sounds good to me. Any last words there, Tito? Yeah. Again, looking forward to to, to this uh, discussion continuing. I think Impossible Foods, uh, Beyond Meat. Uh, there's a bunch of other companies in the pipeline, uh, including Air Protein. Uh, CEO Lisa Dyson was one of the speakers at the recent Air Miners conference. Um, I think it's definitely a, a topic to watch, and it's particularly interesting to me because it's an intersection of biotechnology and, uh, and food and climate.
Yeah, I think you made a good point too that we are at the beginning of this curve, and I'm sure even if even I'm not saying this is the truth, but even if it were the case that um, various types of these plant-based proteins are not amazingly healthful for you to eat currently, or they're they're heavily processed, or they're not nearly as healthy as one might expect. Um, that's not to say that this technology will not continue to improve. And I'm sure great strides will be made over time too. And I'm also looking forward to seeing what comes out of the industry, but we'll leave it at that for now. And then Alden, if you could introduce this uh, WRI webinar on soil carbon and what the context is there, that would be great. Well, the World Resources Institute, which does a lot of great work, has been trying to work through what their positions and recommendations should be um, in with respect to um, uh, insetting, offsetting uh, corporate strategies to reduce emissions and to offset which emissions they cannot reduce directly. Um, and in the last few weeks, they've come out with um, uh, a, a quite, uh, at least on my part, unexpected and, and, and quite sort of almost dramatic position and that that in summary is is discouraging um, companies whether they are integrated food uh, company uh, globally integrated food companies or energy companies from including paying farmers to draw down and sequester carbon in the soil in their um, offsetting strategies and for that and insetting strategies and the art but that's just for, for for carbon, though, right? They're supportive of them doing it for other reasons, perhaps. No, they're saying of, oh. of all the things you can do, of all the options to draw carbon dioxide or heat trapping gases out of the atmosphere, when your goal is to retain the recovered carbon in a terrestrial reservoir, whether it's natural or man-made, do not include projects that claim to store carbon in the soil in your portfolio. Um, and uh, they they presented uh, um, a number of arguments that suggest the, um, that there is no scientific basis for um, um, suggesting that incremental carbon can be stored uh, for any length of time in the soils, which quite frankly, which statements I, I can't I can't really understand because um, the science as, as we know it is quite different from how it was described in the WRI webinar. And in fact, um, seven of the world's leading soil scientists, including but not limited to uh, Rattan Lal and Keith Postian in the United States, responded to the WRI webinar with um, uh, a, a concise and I think very complete um, um, uh, a retort. Um, and, and and that was significant because uh, there are lots and lots of opportunities and temptations for the soil scientists to um, to respond to um, claims that don't stand up, and they usually don't respond. So that the these seven world leading soil scientists felt the need to respond as quickly and completely as they did in and of itself is a signal that something something's um, weird here and and I, I don't know what that is the the second um, the the second 
and, and, and you know, I, I, I don't like attributing motivations to people when I don't know what they are, but I, I, I really don't know what the, the motivations are, the drivers are um, for WRI taking this position. I might, if I understood them, really agree with why um, they started down this path. I, I just can't, I can't agree for a moment with the conclusions they've drawn. When I think about WRI or groups like CDP, Carbon Disclosure Project, um, the goal is to help companies and organizations make decisions about how they're choosing to deal with their sustainability goals. So a group like WRI saying soil carbon uh, and regenerative agriculture is not going to help you on your carbon goals is a really big deal because it might close off um, parts of carbon removal to companies who are currently considering it. Is that accurate? That might be what they're thinking, but it's certainly not accurate. And, you know, and, and, you know, what I'm about to say is me relying entirely on uh, carbon or CDP, um, CDP's carbon majors reports. Uh, the reality is that 57% of anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions, man-made greenhouse gas emissions, um, um, are the scope one and scope three emissions of 50 and only 50 companies worldwide. Uh, to get up to 82% of anthropogenic, anthropogenic emissions, you only have to get up to 244 companies. Wow. If you look at the current annual reports and sustainability reports of that top 50 that account for a discharges between 31 and 32 billion uh, no, sorry, 31 and 32 is the 244 companies. The um, top 50 is is less that, than that. But if you look at their annual emissions and their plans, even the greenest of the green in those companies has not only no plan to um, reduce their scope one and scope three combined emissions uh, by 2030, they have no plans to reduce those emissions and they continue to grow through 2040. Um, and if you look at their capital spending budgets in their most recent annual reports, um, in some, over 50% of their capital spending continues to go to exploration and development of fossil fuel reserves. Even if you look at Equinor, uh, used to be Stat Oil, Norway's uh, people-owned um, energy company, in their most e recent annual report, only 4% of their capital spending is being dedicated to the development of all forms of what they call new energy supplies. So let's be real. Every carbon uh, CD, CDP, Carbon Disclosure Project report, shows is, is the source of the facts that say, not only are these companies not planning on cutting their emissions over the next 20 years, um, because they aren't, and as long as they aren't planning on cutting their emissions over the next 20 years, uh, uh, it's not even possible for the Paris Accord, Accord 2030 goals to be achieved, no matter what everybody else does, except for one thing. The only thing that is big enough and affordable enough and has enough co-benefits to offset that reality I just described is paying food and fiber producers to um, adopt regenerative practices. Global food and fiber producers could reasonably be drawing down 10 to 25 billion tons a year 
um, by 20, 2030. Certainly not enough to cover the 31 or 32 billion tons a year, the 244 largest emitters are still going to be emitting in 2030, but a nice bite in it. So at what point are we going to say, hey, CDP, your own reports say these guys aren't going to do it. Um, at what point are we going to start saying, guess what? These guys aren't going to do it. So what do we do now? As opposed to somehow we're going to spend another 30 years, just like we spent the last 30 years, which is saying, hey, you guys, you got to do it. Are you amazed with her uh, memory for figures? Yeah, this Tito? is great. <laughs> Samurai. I'm amazed you're able to just pull out percentages and, and numbers off of reports that I assume you, you read once or maybe twice. Um, do you have anything to add there, Tito? Or is that so comprehensive you're, you're intimidated? It's pretty damn comprehensive. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to get there's anything specific regarding, as we were talking about with, uh, cattle farming and stuff like that. I think that's something that came up in, um, in the, in the webinar too, they were talking about, uh, kind of balancing, balancing things there. Um, I think it was half of, uh, half of all agricultural emissions are related to, uh, uh, to meat. Um, do you have any, anything else to add to that, uh, that piece of it? Yeah, uh, there's different ways of doing the numbers. I, I would probably say the single largest source of, of agricultural emissions, and it kind of really depends on how far you go down the supply chain, is still um, related to synthetic fertilizer use. So to the extent we could be substituting um, animal waste compost for synthetic fertilizers, um, um, we we could be we could be making a good positive difference. So I'm not arguing in favor or against meat. I'm saying that as long as meat is in the supply chain, there's at least a transition to lower emissions in agriculture that includes as long as we're producing meat using that waste in, um, to substitute for synthetic fertilizer. Got it. Thank you. Is that was that uh, when they were talking about manure management? Is that kind of uh, what, yeah. what you're referring to? Okay. Yeah, but don't. Uh, yeah, and and again, and when it comes to manure and organic matter substituting, you know, compost substitute for synthetic fertilizers, weird thing is, same story applies. Uh, really, really, uh, e each animal you're talking about is is really, 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 really different. Um, uh, I'll I'll hit the punchline. Um, I keep thinking I should stop eating meat. I eat meat in all forms of meat um, because I love meat. Um, <laughs> Do you feel but, that but, but, but if if I if I if I ever stop being a hypocrite, um, I'm probably going to dump um, uh, beef out of my my diet first, and I'm going to probably eat pork till my death. Not just because. I love how pigs taste, but I can do a lot more sustainably and get derive a lot more environmental benefits out of um, um, hog manure than than uh, the waste from uh, than cow's waste. Mm. Uh, there's a real difference between what comes out of an animal that has more than one stomach and one that comes out of an animal that has one stomach. And the other thing is, you know what the great thing about pigs are? They can eat anything. So they're also a waste disposal bin. So when we get into it in detail, there's a whole bunch of different ways to transition that don't mean, don't necessarily mean 
stop eating all forms of animal flesh tomorrow afternoon. There might be good animal welfare reasons to do that. I'm not discounting those. As I said, I, I change my mind on this stuff every 25 minutes. But if you're looking at rank order, I gotta love pigs. Beautiful to, to jump on the, the enthusiasm train. I, I love this. There's this quote from um, the CEO of Impossible Foods that I'll that I'll paraphrase, but it explains why my freezer probably will be full of plant-based meats or or lab-grown meats till my inevitable death. <laughs> but, <laughs> it was something. It was something like uh, nature has had millions of years to evolve uh, to evolve me- the flavor of meat. Uh, but we've only we've only just begun uh, evolving the flavors and processes and uh, and textures of, uh, of of plant grown and uh, and, and lab grown meat. Um, so to me, I, similar similar enthusiasm, I think, for the for the potential that can be uh, that's that's still out there that's uh, that's undiscovered. I totally agree with that. Again, I I I made my argument for pigs not as a argument against plant based meats, just uh, just illustrating why I'm so confused about this topic. Sure, yeah. Yeah, there are good versions and bad versions of all of those broad categories of meat, I'm sure. Um, I think what we're doing currently as the dominant paradigm with with CAFOs, cage animal feeding operations, those uh, are clearly not working for for cruelty reasons, uh, for environmental reasons, for carbon reasons. There's a whole bunch of overlapping problems, labor reasons. There's all sorts of terrible things about them, but uh, it isn't to say it will always be that way. You go can, ahead. can I add one more thought too? And and um, and I'll probably make huge enemies saying this. Um, I I always I have trouble with mixing up all of our causes into one pot. Um, like what I just said. Yeah. Or something yeah. else. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what, how would you say it instead? So um. Um, well, I, I, I would be, um, okay with, uh, arguments to, to, uh, reduce our dependence on, uh, confinement operation, uh, uh, grown, you know, grown animals. Um, I, I think if that's the primary reason to, to not eat that meat, we should stick with that being the primary reason. I find that we seem to go through phases where if if the theme of today is greenhouse gases, then the whole reason to do it is greenhouse gases, even when the whole the the the, the better reason to do it is is animal welfare. And I find half the time we don't achieve our environmental goals and objectives is we keep mixing up me, um, multiple objectives and putting them under one flag, which seems to be the flag of the moment, and we lose the battle every time. So let's stay focused. If there's one primary and totally legitimate reason to um, uh, switch from a food source, let's not, um, you know, let's not call that, um, you know, label, put that all under the E. coli battle on, you know, for a few years and the greenhouse battle for a few years. Let's, if it's about animal welfare, let's, let's just talk about animal welfare. Does that, I think when when we try to try to uh, um, put everything under the label of the day, we lose the battle every time. Well, yeah, this is a long running debate. I don't know how you feel about it, Tito, but 
you could link this to people and various approaches to climate change, where is this just about the PPM in the atmosphere, or are we linking it to various types of climate justice um, problems that surround this? Are we linking it to animal welfare? What exactly, how inclusive or all-encompassing are we imagining our activism with regard to climate change? I think it's a it's an open question, but I think you're everyone's certainly leaning towards more justice-focused approaches these days. Yeah, my take is I, I just think we're we're limited in the in the in the depths of our imagination. I think that if we if we have uh, an inclusive future where we we see something bad happening or the you know the world just going to crap, then I don't think that engages people. Um, I think in order to grow beyond the existing climate movement, we need to really connect to people all around the world. I mean, there's, there's millions and billions of people on the planet and they're not a part of this conversation. That's, uh, that's part of the work that I'm doing at, at air miners is working on how do we, how do we take this conversation and grow it in terms of, uh, including, you know, millions and billions of people, uh, in this. Yeah, I, this might be taking me us off on a tangent too long, but, um, I keep remembering sadly the late eighties when the environmental movement reasonably decided to be very, very concerned about the proliferation of, um, of salmon farms, uh, uh, open, open net salmon farms on the coast, especially in the Pacific where we were introducing Atlantic salmon into, into the Pacific because we knew how to breed them. And, um, in the late 80s and the 1990s, the environmental movement decided the goal was to shut down the industry. Don't don't let it get off the ground. And I'm and of course, in 1989, you know, less than 30 percent of all the salmon people ate worldwide was farmed. And today it's more than 80 percent of the salmon. So the attempt to get the salmon farming industry shut down was a total failure. I swear, and this is just, you know, hypothetical, I, I understand, but I swear that if the environmental movement in the late 80s has said, salmon farming has to be closed system. You can do it, you just can only do it if you can prove to the regulators that you're releasing nothing into the ocean. I swear if they had focused on that, that environmental objective, that no releases into the ocean, that we would have had salmon farms and they would mostly have been on land. The, in British Columbia, the first on-land salmon tank, farming tank, opened up uh, just in the last few years. So the, when the goal was to shut down the industry, nothing happened. If the goal had stayed really focused on what's the environmental outcome or the, that we want to prevent or, the, uh, or, or, or create, I think we could have. I think we could have had a completely different salmon farming industry alive and running today. So you're arguing for a very specific, narrow focus. That one thing, if we had focused on, would have made all the difference. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And there are certainly trade-offs um, either way you go. Um, I know if Jane were here, Jane would be arguing super hard the other direction that this is an intersectional multifaceted problem that we, we need all that complexity on uh, for reasons of, of ethics and justice. Um, 
but yeah, it, it is a, a long running open question. And well, let's wrap it up. We're, uh, we did good work, I think. Um, what do you guys want to plug? Why don't, Tito, why don't you, you go first? Plug, we, uh, we just launched our, our negative newsletter. If you go to gonegative.co, uh, we're, we're working on, on growing the conversation around, uh, around these technologies, around these, these trends and, and getting, basically it's, it's, it's a way to, uh, yeah, to be a part of this conversation. It's, I think for a lot of people on the air miners community, it's something they do, you know, it's something they work on, something they're, they're actively working in. Um, and with negative, we want to take those stories and start, uh, sharing that out to more, uh, to more and more people. So check that out at gonegative.co. It's an experiment. We're trying it out. Uh, come join us. And then am I okay to just issue an open call saying, go join the air miner slack? Totally. 100%. If you're listening to this, you would fit in. These are your, these are your people at the air miner slack. So the link to join is in the show notes as well, as well as gonegative.co. Alden, uh, anything beyond uh, Nori, nori.com? Yeah, beyond nori.com, I want to actually go back to where this uh, this discussion started, which is um, um, uh, Unilever. And that Unilever, many years ago, put the funding in place to create something called the Cool Farm Tool, and which is and and the Cool Farm Alliance. And the Cool Farm tool, which you can look up, was a tool that was developed to help food and fiber producers um, develop a picture of their um, uh, product life cycle uh, greenhouse gas um, footprint. And it's a really useful tool in that um, context. It's not a tool yet that we can use to monetize carbon, not because they made a mistake, it's because they firmly intended to have the tool not used to, mon to monetize carbon, to help people figure out how to quantify um, carbon stock changes and sell real interest in those ecosystem services. But last April, the board of Cool Farm Tool agreed that um, they would authorize the staff to um, um, proceed to decide whether or not to modify the tool to modify monetize carbon. And as of a few weeks ago, the decision has been to go forward. So it's probably gonna be some time and they'll require some fundraising to make the changes to the tool that are required for it to be a carbon quantification tool. But they've they've set they've they've set out to do that and that's a really great decision. And um, it's a wonderful team that's working on it. So we congratulate them. Well, that's nice. Tito, do you feel bad? You could have repped someone else. You repped yourself, you selfish, <laughs> <Yes>. selfish man. <laughs> cool farm tool. Link to that is also in the show notes. Thanks you both for being here. Great stuff. Nice being with y'all. You too. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. If you like the show, please share it with a friend. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And thank you so much for listening.